The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So we're going to look at God's Word together, Scripture. Uh, God has chosen to communicate with us as humans through revelation, did it through his apostles, also his prophets of Old Testament, New Testament, and Several of those wrote down what God said because God told them to write it down, and then God, in his grace, has preserved it perfectly in Scripture for thousands of years, and then faithful Christians have put it into language that we can read and understand, English. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek originally. So we're going to be looking today in the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 3. Just want to say a thank you. Last week I wasn't here. I was out, so thank you to J.R., who was preaching the word and many others that filled in the holes and now jr's out enjoying time with family so keep him in prayer as well usually we'll have uh, opportunity for fifth graders on down to maybe be a part of children's church at this time but today you are invited to stay here and listen to what god has to say in the book of genesis and i think you will be able to understand it just the way it's written just as us big people do um so we would encourage you to Follow along and listen to the best of your ability because there's important truth in Genesis 3 who applies to fifth graders and second graders, two-month-old babies, and babies that are in the womb. That's literally in the text. As a matter of fact, we are looking today at Genesis chapter 3. If you've got a bulletin or we're able to see ahead what we're looking at, The last time we met, we covered all the way up to verse 13 of Genesis chapter 3. Today we're looking at, we're just picking up right after that, verses 14 through 19. And just to set the context and the history, especially those of you who haven't been with us, usually we'll be preaching out of a New Testament book, but we started a study at the very beginning of the Bible, the first book of the Bible called Genesis, verse 1. And we've been going through many sermons on genesis chapter one we're now in chapter three in genesis chapter one we saw how god created everything in the beginning we believe this is true history this is not mythology it's not allegory the rest of the the majority of the world thinks genesis one is mythological it's allegory it's nonsense it's not scientific our position is no this is true history it actually happened this way god was the only one there he's the only eyewitness he told us exactly what happened he had it written down and preserved so this is god's perspective anybody else that says otherwise is just speculating because they weren't there the only person there was god himself And this is affirmed in the New Testament by Jesus and the apostles. Jesus wasn't just a man. Jesus was the God man, the perfect man, the all-knowing man. And Jesus's perspective as a Jewish rabbi was that Genesis 1 was history. And it was true. And it's the foundation of all things. So that's the perspective that we have been taking in. And Genesis chapter 1 lays out how all things began through God's direct creation and Six times in that chapter, as God was creating everything, he said it was good, it was good, it was good. Then he concludes his creation by saying it was very good on the last day of creation after he created humanity. And that's God's divine pronouncement that in the very beginning, when God made everything, it was perfect exactly the way that he wanted it. It was without flaw. There was no sin. And as a result, there was no curse on the earth or in the universe. There was no Satan, who was fallen at the time, or demons. And there was no death. It's amazing. That's how God originally created the world. And so 
that went on for, we don't know how long the earth was in that condition, but it was perfect. Then in chapter 2, Moses, who's the author writing this in 1400 B.C., in chapter 2, Moses gives us detailed information about the creation of the first two humans on day six of creation. First, Adam made out of dirt in God's image. And then God made Eve the perfect complement to Adam. And she was made up literally out of the rib of Adam. And then God brought those two together. Those are the first two humans. That's where humanity came from, not evolving from amoeba in the sea or some green slime billions and millions of years ago. God's point of view, which is the accurate one, is that Human beings were created directly by God as the apex of his creation, and they were made in his image. In other words, humans would be reflecting the very image and character of God, unlike animals, unlike plants, unlike anything else in creation. And so that was chapter 2, where God zeroes in and shows how Adam and Eve were made. And God performed the first wedding, by the way. Where did marriage come from? God created marriage. God performed the first marriage. And God brought Adam and Eve together in the first perfect marriage. And that's how. And then God blesses marriage, that relationship. And so still, by the end of Genesis chapter 2, everything is perfect without sin. Exactly the way God intended it to be. And then we transition to chapter 6. And then, Houston, we have a problem. And that's where we pick up Genesis chapter 3. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Everything was perfect. And then all of a sudden it says, there's a transition there now. Or, but. Or, uh uh-oh. The serpent, now the serpent, but the serpent. So this is a huge indicator that something happened between the white spaces after Genesis 2.25 and the beginning of Genesis 3.1. What happened? Well, at a minimum, everything was perfect at the end of chapter 2, but between Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, Satan, who was originally Lucifer, who was a good angel, God made angels during the first week, probably, and they were only good angels, and then at some point the angels rebelled, Lucifer was one of those angels. God cursed him, punished him, and he became Satan. And there were other angels who followed him, and they became demons. Demons are not the offspring of Satan. Satan didn't have babies. Demons are fallen angels. Satan and his angels, they're kind of, they're his homies. They're a gang. They're in his club. So you've got to keep that in mind. They are not his seed, his babies, his offspring. So now the serpent was more crafty. So then in chapter 3, we saw the last couple of times together that God explains how evil entered into the world. This is very important. Remember, Moses is writing 1400 B.C. Moses is leading about 2 million Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. It was horrible. It was oppressive. It was horrific. It lasted for centuries. They had no identity. They had no rights. For the most part, they had no divine revelation. They had no way to interpret the world and all around them. And then Moses, the prophet, comes along and he's leading them to freedom. Not only that, God is giving Moses divine revelation to give these two million Israelites who are in the desert headed to the promised land. And they're getting this divine revelation about how everything began. To encourage them, among other things, in the beginning, people, it hasn't always been this way. There hasn't always been evil slavery and wicked taskmasters and evil pharaohs and kings. There hasn't always been thorns and thistles and starvation and oppression and 
hatred and evil and death. Didn't start out that way. So he's giving them context to understand and interpret history. Moses, by the grace of God, is giving two million Jews. God is making a nation. He's giving them a worldview, a biblical worldview by which to interpret reality, by which to interpret their own life. You know, we need that. We need a lens by which to interpret our own life and our existence in the world in which we live. If we didn't have that, we'd spend our time scratching our head wondering, why did this happen? Why is this happening? What's going to happen? This is horrible. How did this happen this way? And there are people who live that way. And they just live their life asking questions. They don't have the answers because they don't have divine revelation. Christians live this way, asking questions. That's okay. That's legitimate. The psalmist in the Bible asks God questions continually because God didn't tell us everything we could know. He told us everything we need to know by way of his revelation. But he didn't tell us everything that we could possibly know. So there are many questions left unanswered for us. Yet by the grace of God, God has given us scripture and divine revelation and particularly to believers who have salvation in Jesus Christ, they have the Holy Spirit living in them to help them understand better the scriptures and to understand and interpret life. And so that's what the Bible is for us. It's really a grid by which, among other things, to understand and interpret life properly. And that is particularly true of Genesis 1 through 3 and especially Genesis chapter 3. I live my life in Genesis chapter 3 and I have ever since I became a Christian over 30 years ago. I'm just continually going back to Genesis chapter 3, either literally flipping through the pages or in my mind as I'm interpreting and trying to understand life and reality from day to day to day. Because that's why God gave it to us. Genesis chapter 3, particularly 14 through 19, as we look at it today, are God's answers to reality and particularly the problems of life. The greatest challenge to Christianity, according to the atheists, agnostics, and skeptics, is this problem called the problem of evil. Hey, Christians, you are idiots. Your religion is false and phony. Your Bible's inadequate and insufficient because you can't answer the greatest problem or dilemma in life, and that's called the problem of evil. And that as you say, you have a good God, a loving God, an all-powerful God, and yet we've got all this evil in the world. How does that make sense? How does that jive? If your God really was a loving God and he was all-powerful, then out of love, God would prevent all these horrible, evil, wicked things from happening. So they argue. So maybe because there's so much evil and horrible things in the world, day after day, week after week, you can't pick up a newspaper or read an article online of the daily news. You can't. It is impossible You can't do it without seeing something horrible and wicked going on in the world every single day. Death, disaster, volcano, hurricane, earthquake, murder. It's impossible. And so this is the problem of evil. So if your God was really a loving God to you Christians, then out of love, your God, because he's all-powerful, supposedly he would prevent these things from happening. So they conclude because your your God is loving, but he's not able to stop it. Therefore, your God is not all powerful. Or maybe it's your God is all powerful and he doesn't stop it. Therefore, your your God really isn't loving. Therefore, your Bible is wrong because your Bible says God is love. So for literally 2000 plus years. That has been the main juggernaut or the main 
argument, we are told that skeptics wield against the truth of Christianity and supposedly Christians don't have an answer. We are defenseless. We cry, uncle, oh, you got me there, gotcha. But that's not really the case. The problem of evil. It's actually very simple, the answer, in terms of what God has revealed. God has answered the problem of evil. God's not aware that there's evil in the world. God knows everything. As a matter of fact, uh, that's, what, that's one of the main things that Genesis three fourteen through 19 answers for us, why there is so much evil in the world. And again, this is from God's perspective. That's why this is so helpful. These critics and skeptics try to tell us, you know, gotcha. There's evil in the world. Gotcha. There's evil in the world. Bet you didn't know that, Christian. Gotcha. I was like, no. On the contrary, the Bible is the authority on evil. As a matter of fact, all 66 books of the Bible talk about evil and suffering in the world. All 66 of them. As a matter of fact, the Bible addresses evil in the world and suffering in the world more specifically than any book that was ever written and more comprehensively. Just about every chapter is dealing with evil and suffering and sin in the world. So the Bible is the authoritative expert on suffering and sin in the world. So, And that makes God the expert on sin and suffering in the world. And answering the question, then why is there so much suffering in the world? Here's the answer. 14 through 19. Let's go ahead and look at it. Um, today's sermon, it's got a title there. You can pull that up. And then i got four points that I just summarized these uh, Verses 14 through 19, we look at them. And the main theme here in verses 14 through 19 is the curse. The curse. God put a curse on creation. God cursed humanity. God cursed several things. We're going to see that. And I broke it up into four things that God cursed. Why? The curse speaks of God making judgment. So curse is synonymous with judgment. Judgment means, and God did it. Back in the beginning, God cursed. So just look at verse 14, cursed. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you. So there's curse. And then verse 17, he says to Adam, cursed is the ground. So this passage is bookend by curses from God and everything in between is a curse from God. And cursing speaks of judgment and judgment that came from God, which speaks to God's character. Going back to the skeptic who said, well, well, according to Christianity, God is loving and God is all-powerful sometimes they'll they'll throw in all-knowing and then that's kind of their definition of god well oops they forgot a very important characteristic of god didn't they god is also holy that means god is sinless he is perfect he is pure so you got to add that in the equation when you're describing god after all you can't let an atheist or an agnostic agnostic define god for us right We have to tell them who God is. God's revealed himself through scripture. God is loving, yes. God does know everything, absolutely, including the future. God is uh, all-powerful, definitely. He's the almighty God. But in addition, God is holy. And what that means is not only is he sinless, he is perfect. He can't tolerate sin. He must punish sin. He must punish wrong. He's a God of justice. That's basic to who God is. And that plays into this problem of evil. And also in this passage, you see God who is a loving God, an all-knowing God, a gracious and merciful God, a patient God. All these characteristics are true of God, and they all work together and complement one another. None of them are to be isolated apart from another. That's a false dichotomy. 
But within all these wonderful, blessed characteristics and attributes of God is also his holiness, which manifests itself in different ways through judgment and punishment and justice and, get this, anger or wrath, the wrath of God. Paul talks about the wrath of God in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Obadiah talks about God's wrath. It's all over the Bible. So these curses are a manifestation of God's holiness resulting from his judgment on sin. God must punish sin. That's a spiritual law. It's inviolable. You can't change it. God decreed it. That's the way it is. God can't tolerate sin. God must punish sin. And we see that through these curses. God cursed. God cursed. So God is a God of holiness. God is a God of judgment. God is a God of wrath. God is the one we are accountable to. He is our creator, but he's also our judge. And the good news is he's also our savior. And there's only one way to be saved from God's wrath, and that's through Jesus, the Savior, who's actually in this passage, which is amazing. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, Jesus is in this passage. Now, if you look through it and you say, well, wait a minute, I don't see the name Jesus there. Well, he's there. Jesus has more than one name. He has many names. So he's the he's the golden thread. It starts in verse 15 that goes throughout and the scarlet thread, speaking of his blood that would pay for sin throughout the rest of the Bible. So um, we have to remember that God is a God of judgment. Now, what is God judging? What is God? So part of his wrath, God also hates. Did you know that? Hate, that's not a dirty word. It's not a bad word. It's a good word when it's understood properly in the right context. God is a God of hate. He hates one thing. You could summarize it that way. God hates sin. That's the best way to summarize it. He hates sin. And he must punish sin. So when everything was great and God was laying out his plan, he wanted to bless Adam and Eve. That was his intention. So in Genesis chapter 2, we saw how God created Adam, and then he put he made this perfect garden, huge, massive, spacious garden of Eden that probably went for hundreds of miles and was walled in or fenced in with beautiful trees, or we don't know how God did it. But anyway, it was Adam had everything he needed in there to live and survive. And when Adam was in this perfect garden of Eden, God said, everything you have to live and survive you need, it's here. Eat from all of these trees, all the variety of trees. Absolutely amazing. Indulge yourself. You are blessed, except for stay away from those two trees. So Adam had everything he needed. He was, God put him there to bless him. And then we saw that Adam disobeyed and sinned, and as a result, he's going to incur punishment from God. But the one command that God gave Adam in that perfect garden at that time was you can do all this thing, but one thing you cannot do, and that is you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, at this time, Adam is perfect. He's never sinned. He doesn't have a sin nature. He doesn't have sin living in him. That's different than me and you. We have, this is an amazing concept. We have sin living in us. Clearly, from many scriptures, Romans seven fourteen through 25 is the most specific. It says that sin lives in us. Evil lives in us. Paul, the apostle, as a saved believer, said that about himself. He was honest and he knew. Sin lives in me. It's in our DNA until we die and go to glory. Then we're finally set free within the sin that lives inside of us. And so you might be asking at times, why do I sin? Well, the answer from the Bible's point of view is very simple. We sin because we're sinners. We sin because we have a sin nature. We, have si- we sin because we have sin living in us. We sin because we are born sinful. It's kind of like in our spiritual DNA, even as Christians. The amazing thing is, is Adam committed his first sin, even though he wasn't a sinner. He wasn't a sinner, yet he sinned. And I'm like, wow, how does that happen? 
He was not a sinner, yet he sinned. I sin because I'm a sinner. I mean, that just comes naturally. I don't even have to think about it. Nobody had to teach me how to do it. I am an expert sinner by nature, as are you, by the way. Adam never sinned, didn't have a sin nature, had no sin living in him, and yet he sinned in verse 6. What was the sin? Eve ate, that was sinful, and then Adam ate. That was So that was the sin that was the first sin, and it plunged Adam and Eve and the whole human race into sin and God's judgment and wrath. And so now we see that wrath poured out right now in verses 14 through 19. You know, that, got, that made God angry. Sin makes God angry. And God's anger needs to be appeased or assuaged. And the only thing that appeases God's anger towards sin is the blood of Jesus Christ, is the death of his blessed son. That is the only thing. So if you're trying to cover up your sin in any other way, hide from your sin, run from your sin, pretend it doesn't exist, cover it up with false religion, false worldviews, false ideology, yoga, drugs, alcohol, whatever, that doesn't assuage or appease the wrath and anger of God towards sin. It's only the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the only thing. And if you believe that Jesus was the God-man and died on the cross, shed his blood willingly as a substitute for you and me because you are sinful and you ask God for forgiveness, he will forgive you. It's the only way to be forgiven. So God is angry with the first sinners, Adam and Eve. And they know it in, intuitively now because they have guilt, they have shame, they've never experienced before. And the first inclination of a sinner is to run from God, hide from God. Close your eyes, close your ears, run from the creator. And that's what they do. And then God hunts them down. And then he starts talking to them. Then he gets them to fess up. And he catches them in a lie. And now he's going to rebuke them and give them consequences. And now God is going to exercise his judgment, his wrath, his holiness, punishment, his anger, his hatred towards sin. But remember, God is more than that. He is gracious. He is loving. He is patient. He's the Savior. So even in the face of this sin, when God said in Genesis 2, 17, if you eat from this tree, you'll die. Death is a consequence. God is even gracious about that. Yes, Adam would die, but even in the midst of God meeting out the punishment of death, God is gracious to Adam. I believe Adam, saved, Adam was saved by God, forgiven by God. I believe, personally, that Adam and Eve probably are in heaven and we will see them someday. Totally forgiven. And see, that's the grace of God. Yes, you will die. He did die physically. He died spiritually for a moment as he was booted out of the Garden of Eden before he had forgiveness of sin. And now I believe Adam and Eve are in heaven. And then if, you get, if you're a Christian and you go to heaven, you might be thinking, oh, you know what? I'm going to find Adam and Eve. I'm going to find Adam in particular. I'm going to corner him and I'm going to ask him, why did you do it? And he's going to say, do what? You know, you ate that fruit, that apple or whatever it was, and you, you messed it up for the rest of us. And you know what? Adam will be, he will have no recollection of all of his sins, they've been totally forgotten and forgiven. So he's going to, I don't even know what you're talking about. And you know what? He'll be telling the truth. I have no idea what you're talking about. Because God is a gracious, forgiving God. So it's really important to know why God is angry here, why he's cursing, why he's punishing. Because he's a holy God, he must punish sin. So let's go ahead and look at the punishment, the curse. Because that's the theme of this passage. So uh, there's four points there. God curses. By the way, every evil, wicked, horrible thing that goes on in the world and in your life today falls into one of these four categories. You know that? As a result of the curse of God. This passage answers the hardest questions in life, the most personal questions in life, all the way from who knows you better than you do? 
of what's going on in your mind, in your heart, and on the inside and what you think. As a human being, you know yourself better than anybody else. God knows you, and he knows me better than we know ourselves. But among humans, you are the only one that really knows what's going on. But even right now, as you're thinking, daydreaming, sleeping, whatever it is, paying attention to this sermon, your spirit knows what's going on on the inside. And you know what you're struggling with. You know what you have fears of. You know what you're suffering with. You know the devastation or the tragedies and hard times you've had in your life, the ongoing struggles. You know all of that. And every one of those things that you're dealing with in your own life can fall into one of these four categories as a result of the curse of God on this life. We live in a cursed world. That's just the reality. That's what one of the things that God wants to communicate to us, and it's a result of sin. So let's go ahead and look at those. Oh, yeah, just some practical things. Some of the questions of the world are like, um, why do I keep doing these bad things I keep doing? Why can't I have self-control over what I eat? Why am I so lazy and I can't go exercise the way that I would like to? How come I can't get along with my relatives or my in-laws or my co-workers? How come he or she is such a jerk? Why is there divorce? Why do innocent babies die? Why is there war constantly in the world? Why was there an earthquake last week? Uh, was it in Indonesia that killed hundreds of people? Why are there hurricanes all the time down near Florida and New Orleans and down on the coast there routinely that devastate lives? It doesn't matter what question you ask. All of those really are answered right here. Which is profound. And they're answered very specifically. The alternative is everybody here probably falls into one of three camps in terms of your worldview. And the majority of the world probably, I would say today, falls into the camp of uh, secular, unbelieving people who believe in evolution. And they believe that evolution is the overriding truth to reality that explains everything that's going on in their worldview. And they, they try to explain everything through evolution. Darwinian evolution. That's just probably the most dominant worldview, at least in Western culture, America, California, here in Northern California, without a doubt. And so they use that grid to try to answer all the questions in life. And the problem is they can't. It's deficient. And it's inconsistent. And it internally just collapses on itself. They can't, evolution, secular evolution cannot answer the most difficult and the most personal questions that we have as human beings. It just can't. They come up empty. Then, So that's the first category of people, and that's probably most people in the world. Secular Darwinian evolution trying to explain everything in life. And that's easy to diffuse because you can just ask basic presuppositions presuppositional questions like oh okay so you're a pre you're an evolutionist how wait so how did everything come into existence oh about 14.5 billion years ago through the big bang oh okay so what existed before the big bang nothing really so like nothing just blew up and became everything how does how's that scientific that's not scientific so that's just one example then the second category of people maybe some here today would be christians or people who say they believe in jesus the resurrection he died on the cross might even say you believe in the Bible, spiritual book, and at the same time you still embrace some form of evolution. In other words, you look at Genesis 1 through 3 and you don't see it as literal or history. It's spiritual, it's allegory, it's myth. It's like a parable. 
You're not supposed to take it historically and literally. You're not supposed, the snake wasn't a real snake. That didn't really happen. Snakes don't talk. But you're looking for a spiritual truth to pull out of it to apply. That's what a lot of Christians do. So that's the second camp. But the problem with that is you still can't answer the most important questions in life. If you're a Christian, if you don't take Genesis 1 through 3 literally, what do I mean? Well, there are several examples. If you don't take Genesis 1 through 3 literally, here's a basic question that I've talked to other highly educated Christians, even seminary professors, seminary graduates who didn't believe, who don't believe in Genesis 1 through 3's history. And then I just ask them, so do you, do you believe there's sin, that it's real? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, I'd say, yeah. How did sin enter the world? And literally, they tell me, um, that's, that's a good question. How did sin, you know, I, hmm, I don't know. But at some point, it did. And then others have very specific answers, um, like one seminary professor who tells me routinely every year as we talk, that sin entered about probably 250,000 years ago, somehow, some way through caveman and Cro-Magnon man. But we're not quite sure how. But he, he doesn't know, and it, it entered through several people. So that's his explanation. He's trying because he wants to stick with the Bible. So they can't even answer the most basic question, how did sin enter into the world? This passage answers how sin entered into the world. And then the New Testament, the Apostle Paul and Jesus tell us that Genesis 3 is literal and it explains to us how sin entered into the world. And it answers, if you can't explain what, that's how sin entered in the world and when, then you can't explain, there's no use for a Messiah. You don't need a Jesus. Because why did Jesus come into the world? For one thing, to die for sin. That's the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for sin. Luke 19 says the same thing. The Son of Man came into the world to seek and to save those who were lost. What does lost mean? Separated from God. How did they get separated? Because of sin. That's why the Son of Man came into the world. So if you reject Genesis 1 through 3 and the historicity of Genesis 3 in particular, then you have just cut off and separated the gospel of Jesus Christ and the purpose of why he came from reality. This is how sin entered the world. God is talking in this passage. God is narrating. God is being quoted. Moses is writing it down. Moses was a reliable prophet of God, moved by the Spirit of God to ensure and guarantee that what is recorded here in 14 through 19 is exactly what God said, exactly what he wanted said, and exactly what he wanted preserved and for us to know. So going back to those three groups of people, you're either in a group number one of just total secular Darwinian evolution, or camp two, maybe you're a Christian and you're trying to juggle the Bible and evolution for whatever reason. And then there's the third category, and that's just actually the dominant view of the church for 2,000 years before Darwin, is that the majority of Christians just believe Genesis 1 through 3 was history. Calvin believed it was history. Luther believed it was history. John Wesley believed it was history. All the saints, Augustine believed it was history. All throughout church history. This is how it really happened. And so maybe you're a Christian that just takes the Bible at face value and believes that uh, Genesis 1 to 3 is narrative and it's history and Jesus believed it that way and Paul believed it that way and they commented on it. All the Old Testament prophets believed it that way and commented on it and so that's how we're going to take it. And So that's I would fall into that camp. 
and be encouraged if you fall into that camp. Because now if you believe that Genesis 1 through 3 is literal in history and you take it at face value, then you have a fully orbed, comprehensive, complete worldview by which to interpret everything in life, in the world and in your own personal life. And things like this so-called problem of evil, it's not a problem. The Bible has an answer. Why is there evil in the world? Because of one thing, sin. And it all started right here. That is clear teaching from Scripture. Let's go ahead and look at it. So we'll look at point number one. I don't know how far we're going to get verses one or points one through four because they are so incredibly important, but we'll just take them as we go. And we'll start with point number one, and that's God's curse on the snake. God's curse on the snake. And I put two points there. I'm just following what, Moses wrote down a twofold curse on the snake and that's he will be despised the snake will be despised and slithering despised and slithering is the two points of emphasis so look at verse 14 uh, God just had a conversation with Adam and Eve tried to confront them of their sin they lied a little bit played the blame shift game and now God's just going to lay into them with the consequences and so God talked to Adam and Eve about their sin but he didn't talk to the snake or Satan about his sin because Satan doesn't deserve that kind of an audience from God because he's just totally evil there's nothing good about Satan whatsoever. He's just categorically evil, incorrigible. Never, he'll never repent. He has no good attributes about him whatsoever. He's a liar and a murderer from the beginning, as Jesus said in John 8. And so God is going to treat him accordingly. So the Lord God starts out by confronting the serpent. Now, notice uh, the Lord God said to the serpent, and the Hebrew word there means snake, like the animal snake. And I think verse 14 is actually talking about the snake, the animal and i just take you back. It, the animal, by the way, the serpent here is not a symbol. You can read in some, actually many Old Testament commentaries by evangelicals, and they'll, and they'll say, well, the serpent or the snake is a symbol. No, it's not. Or the serpent symbolizes. No, it doesn't. Okay, so here, serpent, snake, real animal. How do we know that from the context? Go back to Genesis 3.1. Now, the serpent or the snake was more crafty than any beast of the field. Okay, that's a literal category of animal already mentioned in genesis and which the lord god made there it is god made this snake this is a specific snake a real animal not a myth not a symbol and the lord god literally talked to the snake why is god talking to an animal well we'll find out why he cursed the snake the lord god said to the serpent to the actual snake because you have done this what did he do well the snake was used by a tool of satan to tempt eve to sin and plunge all humanity into sin. So Satan, the actual snake was a tool. And so is guilty because he was, he was a collaborator of sin. Well, that doesn't seem fair, but this is what God did. The snake got involved. The snake's going to get punished. Lord God said to the serpent, to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field so there is the the word despised what's the first curse on the snake is he is to now suffer humiliation so in the beginning when god created all the animals remember genesis chapter one uh, when we talked about uh god created all the the land animals well first he created he created birds but then he created other land animals in genesis 124 and there were three categories of land animals in genesis uh 124 what were they the three categories um, they were cattle or livestock, big animals, creeping things. Don't think snake when you hear creeping things. The Hebrew word actually talks about and refers very specifically to insects. Those are creeping things. 
They're just things buzzing around on the ground. At this time, in Genesis one twenty four, the snake hadn't been cursed yet. He wasn't a creeping thing yet. So cattle, livestock, one category. Creeping thing, all the insects, second category. And the third category is beasts of the earth. That's what a snake was in that category, beast of the earth. And that is affirmed in Genesis 3.1 where it, is, it calls the snake a beast of the field or beast of the earth. Distinguished from creeping things and cattle. So there's God's basic overall taxonomy of three kinds of land creatures. So the snake originally wasn't a creeping thing. It was a beast of the field or a beast of the earth. And the Lord God says to the snake at the time that it was a beast of the earth or beast of the field because you have done this curse to you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. So here, consequence number one, God curses the snake, the actual animal. And God, this is not just a curse on the snake, by the way. This is a curse on all animals. All animals are included in this curse because of the language that is used, especially in the Hebrew language. Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast. You're cursed more than everybody else. All the other animals are cursed because of you, but you're cursed more than all the other animals. So all animals got cursed in this verse, and the snake got cursed more than all as a result. Cursed are you more than all cattle or livestock, and more and cursed are you more than all the other beasts of the field that God is cursing on that day. So he is despised. The snake is despised. The, the literal animal. And then he goes on. Second part of the curse on the snake. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So that's part of the curse. So these curses, by the way, introduce something new that wasn't true before. So a new thing about the curse on the snake is, from now on, Mr. Snake, you are going to crawl on your belly. That's what I put. That's why I put slithering. Before this, the snake wasn't slithering. He was a beast of the field. He was a beast of the earth. He wasn't slithering. He wasn't crawling. God is saying, from now on, you're going to crawl on your belly. From now on, you're going to have dust. You're going to eat dust. You know what eat dust means? He's crawling around, and his head is in the ground. And in the desert, he's literally going through dust. It's in his face constantly, forever. Snakes haven't changed since this time. So that's amazing. So the snake wasn't slithering before this. The snake wasn't eating dust before this. The snake wasn't on the ground moving around on his belly. That's how he was ambulating now. It's a new way to get around. From now on, you have to get around by just slithering on your belly. Prior to this, the snake got around in a different way. Really? So the snake hasn't always been crawling around on his belly? No. Apparently, at some point before this, uh, the snake got around in different ways. The implication is that he got around like all the other beasts of the field or beasts of the earth. Can you think or name a land animal that doesn't have legs? Okay, I'll give you five seconds. Okay, the quiz is over. The only one that I could think of is snake. I'm not counting fish. Land animal. Those three categories. Think of a land animal that doesn't have legs. The only one I can think of is a snake, and it's still true. You can't count insects either. So isn't that amazing? And they tell us the Bible isn't scientific or consistent with science. Well, I'd say it's pretty scientific that if you look around at all the animals, and uh, all of them have legs except for the snake. And that's one of the reasons why the snake was cursed more than all cattle, more than all the other beasts of the field. Mr. Snake, you will be the only animal who no longer has legs. Good luck getting around. You're going to eat dirt all the days of your life. That will never change. And cursed are you. You will be despised, whatever that means. Feared, 
mystery shrouding, shrouding the snake, which is evidence all through history where all false religions, for the most part, major false religions of the world have revered the snake. They haven't despised. God said you're going to be despised, and yet false religion wants to revere the snake. It's kind of interesting. When Moses wrote this, telling the Israelites, who just spent 400 years in Egypt with all their false gods and goddesses, particularly Ra, the sun god. There are even images we have today of Ra, the sun god. And he has a crown on his head. You know what the crown is? A cobra snake around his head. And the cobra snake in the ancient religion of Egypt, during the time of Moses and Pharaoh, the belief was that the snake was deity. The Bible says the snake is evil. False religion says the snake is deity and speaks of eternity. The Bible says the snake speaks and represents death or help bring in death. And then you have all the religions of the world who revere it. Hinduism to this day and all throughout history, Hinduism to this day still reveres snakes and the cobra in particular. And that was true of the people who lived in Egypt in Moses' day. So you had the cobra on top of the Pharaoh's head and supposedly it was divine and it was a form of a god or goddess, the snake or the cobra was. And also supposedly when enemies came, it would spit out fire to protect Ra, the sun god. That's what the Pharaohs believed. And so God is informing them through Moses that no, the snake is not a god. The snake, as a matter of fact, is cursed ironically, more than all other land animals. And he doesn't have legs for a reason because God cursed him that way. So snakes travel around on their body. I just think that's amazing that snakes are the only land animals that don't have legs. And it's kind of interesting. Did you know, so you can only speculate, but then how did they get around? Well, maybe they had legs and maybe the snake was upright and walked around. Can you imagine a snake with legs walking around, running really fast after you like a boa constrictor? Can you imagine a 300-pound boa constrictor coming after you running? That's a scary prospect. What's even worse is maybe the snakes had wings beforehand. Can you imagine a flying rattlesnake coming after you? How do you get away from that? You don't. But somehow they got around. The implication is that they were upright and walked around and could have had legs. So I think personally this is McManusology. I believe that snakes had legs prior to the curse and God removed their legs forevermore all the days of your life, and that snakes would never have legs again. And you might be thinking, McManus, that is so stupid, that's so unscientific, that you're believing a fairy tale. Well, I don't care. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You're going to crawl on your belly from now on, and I think the snake had legs. Oh, newsflash, National Geographic 2016. Here's a quote. You ready? National Geographic. Quote, snakes used to have legs. End quote. Let me go on with the quote. Furthermore, quote, the gene to grow limbs, i.e. legs, still exist in the snake, end quote. National Geographic 2016. So I am not so crazy after all. Isn't National Geographic based on science? Darwinian evolutionary science. Snakes used to have legs. As a matter of fact, all you, anybody here have a boa constrictor at home? That's a cool pet. Um, I know people who have snakes like that for pets and keep them in cages and even take them out and play with them and wrap them around and been to their house and got to hold them and wrap them around and take pictures. 
the boa constrictor, the python. Did you know that the boa constrictor and the python, they have a pelvis? That's scientific. Man, we're talking Genesis is scientific. Snakes, those two snakes, they have a pelvis. What is a pelvis for? I believe a pelvis is around where your hips are. And you only have a pelvis or hips for one thing, and that's for your legs. And today, boa constrictors and pythons have a pelvis. Not only do they have a pelvis, they have what are called pelvic spurs. What is that? Well, uh, where the pelvis is and where the hips would be and where legs used to be or should be, there are little bone spurs kind of uh, sticking out there. Literally, you can see them and touch them where legs would be. And this has befuddled secular scientists for eons of time. Why, why do these snakes have these spurs in the hip pelvic area where legs should be, these both, even to this day? Well, of course, well, and then they have concluded that it is a freak of evolution. Actually, this is evidence that the snake is evolving. See? It used to be so unsophisticated and walked around upright on legs, but now is evolving and becoming better and sliding in the dirt, eating dust. That sounds like devolution to me, not evolution. But that's true about a boa and other snakes today. So they have these little bone spurs they call vestigial um, something or other, vestiges from evolution over the course of time. So... That's why National Geographic and others would say snakes used to have legs in here. Yeah, well, that's consistent with the Bible. God said, yeah, and from now on, you're going to crawl around on your belly unlike all the other animals that used to have legs. So there it is. So that is the curse on the snake and all of its implications. And to this day, the snake is still revered by many in false religion and feared. And from a Christian point of view, all throughout history, the snake has been despised, considered a an enemy, a guilty part in the first sin and temptation. So much so that the serpent is hereon used all throughout the Bible with the prophets and even in the New Testament <clears throat> as speaking of evil, death. That serpent from old, says the New Testament. And even Satan himself is called that serpent of old, the snake. So that is the curse on the snake. Does this pre- prohibit us from having snakes as pets? Absolutely not. Does this prohibit us from eating snakes? No, go ahead. I understand it tastes like chicken if you cook it right, at least rattlesnakes. I've actually had rattlesnake jerky. Uh, they sell it over here at, uh, in Gilroy. So that's the snake. Well, let's go on to Satan, uh, number 2, verse 15. The curse on the snake and now the curse on Satan. And it was a twofold a condemnation on God's part. Uh, hateful and doomed so so god's talking to the actual snake he curses the snake and then god addresses lucifer satan a demon that was inside the snake that used the snake and so now god is talking to the animal but yet really he's talking the personality behind the snake and that is satan himself i mean god can do that yes god is talking to snake the snake but at the same time he's really talking to satan satan is real so this affirms that Uh, Satan is real. This is affirmed in the New Testament. Satan is not just a myth. Satan is the greatest demon. He's very powerful. He is invisible. He is supernatural. He is not infinite, which is good. He's under God's control. He can't do anything that God doesn't allow. But he is hell-bent literally on one thing, and that is destruction. And that's his name, the destroyer. Apollyon, the destroyer, that's Satan. And he wants to destroy 
God, destroy God's plans, destroy God's Messiah, destroy God's people, destroy human beings, lead them astray so they'll reject Christ and go to eternal hell forever and ever and ever. He is the destroyer. There's nothing good about Satan, but he is real. The Darwinian secular evolutionary worldview today has no room for the really the spiritual realm. It has no room for demons and Satan as an influence for evil in the world. And so therefore, it is an insufficient worldview. Jesus talked about Satan and the devil. Jesus encountered Satan, the devil. Paul warned us about the devil in the most basic prayer that we are to pray. That's the Our Father prayer, that model of prayer. The disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, teach us how to pray. The most fundamental thing to do as Christians is pray. And the most fundamental model of prayer was given by Jesus to us. How do we pray, Jesus? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And then between Luke 11 and Matthew 6, you have Jesus saying, when you pray every single day, you specifically are to pray to God. Father, deliver me from the evil one. Deliver me from the temptations of Satan. Jesus believed Satan was real. Jesus believed it was so important that believers need to pray every single day consciously for deliverance from the damning deceptive temptations of Satan himself. Boy, that's that's challenging. When was the last think about it? When was the last time you prayed to God and specifically God deliver me from the wiles of Satan today? Because Jesus said, do it every day, every day. We need to do that. So Satan is real. Well, how can God be talking to Satan when he's actually talking to something else? Well, he Jesus did that. Remember in Matthew 16? One year before Jesus got crucified, Jesus was with his small huddle of apostles in Philippi having time together and he gave him some new revelation he's been with them for two years now there's a year to go and then he gives kind of new information or more definitive than ever before after two years of seminary training and and then he tells him hey guys i'm going to go to jerusalem and i'm going to be crucified and i'm going to die i'm going to be crucified and i'm going to die and then when jesus said that peter took his fingers and put his fingers in his ears i'm going to die and then after peter put his fingers in his ears probably then jesus kept going and finished the sentence i'm going to die and i'm going to rise again hallelujah well peter (laughs) he didn't hear that he didn't focus on that peter got mad but before that little encounter just prior to that jesus was talking and his apostles were all excited and peter you know spoke out and told and said that jesus was the messiah he is the son he is the Messiah. He's the Savior. And then Jesus commended him for that. Peter, you know, human flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My Father in heaven revealed that awesome truth to you. So blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You get it. And then just like moments later, then Jesus says, I'm going to go and die. And then, and then Peter freaks out. And he literally, it says he grabbed Jesus, pulled him aside, and then he begins to rebuke Jesus. How dare you say you're going to die? How dare you say you're going to be crucified? How dare you say you're going to be arrested? Not if I have anything to do with it. And then Jesus, you know, pushing Peter back and said, get behind me, Satan. That's Matthew 16. Was he speaking to Peter? Absolutely. Was he literally speaking to Satan? Absolutely. 
That was satanic. That's a satanic plan that started in Genesis 3.15. Satan's ploy to destroy the seed of the woman that culminates in the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Jesus knows that, and he rebukes Peter and Satan. And that's what God is doing here. He's rebuking the snake, but also Satan himself. And here's the curse on Satan. Look at it. I will put enmity, that's hatred, that is the, the utmost kind of hostility, the Hebrew word there, for war, for death, for killing. It, it is absolutely vicious. There is no stronger word for hostility, hatred, enmity. I will put enmity, I will put hatred, uh, Satan, between you, Satan, and the woman, the woman Eve. There will be perpetual hatred, animosity, warring, killing between you and the woman, not only between you and the woman, but between your seed, the offspring of Satan, the children of Satan, the progeny of Satan, and between her seed, the offspring of the woman. There's going to be ongoing hostility and hatred between your descendants, Satan, and the descendants of Eve. Well, who are the descendants of Satan? They're not demons. Remember, I said Satan doesn't have babies. And all you got to do is you go to John 8. Jesus tells us who the descendants of Satan are. In John 8, he's talking to the unbelieving Jews who have just called Jesus a bunch of names publicly, like bastard child, Samaritan, demon-possessed. That's why they've said all of this publicly. Jesus is teaching in the temple. And then Jesus rebukes them publicly and he says, you are of your father, the devil. So that's who the offspring of Satan are. It is basically unbelievers all throughout time. Those who hate God, hate truth, hate the Messiah. You are of your father, the devil. And to know that that is the context, Genesis chapter three, you take into account Jesus's words. You are of your father, the devil, for he was a murderer. And a liar from the beginning. There it is. Jesus, the master Hebrew Jewish rabbi of the Old Testament, puts it in the context of Genesis 3. You are from, your father is Satan himself. You are his offspring, and that's why you despise me as the Savior. Well, that made him angry all the more, and that, they wanted to kill him. They tried to on the spot. So that's what this descendants are. So between your descendants, that's basically unbelievers is the simplest way to say it all throughout history. So if you are not a Christian today and you are, then the Bible says, if you're not a believer, even especially after hearing truth, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you don't accept God's truth in the Bible, if you don't accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, then you are an enemy of God. And you are cursed. And by way of the words of Jesus in John 8, Satan is your father. Whether you realize it or not, believe it or not. I mean, the Jews, they were religious. They didn't believe Jesus when he said, by the way, you, you are of your father, the devil. They didn't say, oh, 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 okay. Yeah, that's true. Thanks for pointing that out. They denied that. They were insulted. They were furious. And if as a Christian, you go out and that's your evangelism strategy going up to everybody. Are you a Christian? No. Okay. Then you're a child of the devil. Satan is your father. That's really not an effective means of evangelism. Because that kind of evangelism is not modeled in Scripture. We're supposed to go out and share the good news. Gospel means good news. That's bad news. And there's no good news to that. So that's not your starting point. That's kind of like a in-house um, 
truth for intramural truth for Christians to know a part of their worldview that you use wisely at some point if the discussion comes up in the warning part. But we start with the good news. We launch with the good news. That Jesus is a savior of sin and we are all condemned to death because of our sin. We're, we're all sinners. That's the bad news and the good news that there's a solution. Jesus, the savior, and then you have your dialogue. But don't start out that way. But God makes it clear if you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, you don't accept God's truth, you don't accept Jesus, then you are his enemy. You are an offspring of Satan. The good news is that can change. You can be. How do you get from being in Satan's family? Is Satan your father? How do you get from that family into another family? Well, the way that all people get into a different family other than the one they were born in, that's by adoption. We were all born into Satan's family. I was born into Satan's family. I used to be a child of Satan, the devil, really, for 19 years. And then God graciously adopted me. And I wasn't even kind of aware of it, really. He initiated the adoption process. Do you know, it took, you know, some people that adopted takes years and a lot of money. It took 19, the adoption process for me took 19 years. It shows you all the trouble and how hard-hearted I was. And finally, God successfully adopted me from Satan's family and adopted me into his glorious family. And God became my father. Jesus became not only my savior, my elder brother, perfect elder brother. All believers came, my siblings. And I was adopted in the family of God. And if you're a Christian, that's true of you. You were adopted. And then Colossians has that beautiful statement of Colossians chapter one for Christians that you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son through spiritual adoption by belief in the gospel and as a result you're no longer an offspring of satan he you don't have to obey him anymore he doesn't have tyranny over you anymore you're protected by jesus and god the father and the holy spirit who lives in you as a christian it's a blessed thing and it's true so i will put enmity between these two descendants and then he gets specific about one of the descendants well who are the descendants and offspring of eve uh well it's believing people and in particularly seed singular a man a coming man he it's a he so a male is going to come from the loins of eve eventually in history will be born not only will be a believer, but will be the savior. And that's who this is a reference to Jesus in verse 15. He shall bruise you on the head. An offspring, a descendant of Eve is going to come, Satan. And he is going to be a man. He's going to be a real person. He's going to be a descendant of Eve. He's going to come from human loins. He will be a human, yet he will be divine. And he will have the power to crush your head. How do you kill a snake? You crush its head instantaneously. That's what Jesus did when he was born. Thousands of years later, Jesus came into this world. He crushed Satan's head when he died on the cross. Scripture is clear about that. And basically, he rendered Satan powerless. And he will further... And Satan is writhing around and his tail's flopping all over until in the future, Jesus takes care of him once and for all and casts him into the lake of fire forever. But gave him the death knell in terms of crushing his head. That has been fulfilled. Jesus, the Messiah, will come. He will crush you on the head. But you will hurt the Messiah... In the meantime, when he goes down to crush you with his foot, yeah, you'll get a bite in. You'll bite his heel. And that's what Satan did. Verse 15, and you shall bruise him on the heel. You shall bite him on the heel. Literally, you shall strike him on the heel. Did Satan strike Jesus on the heel? Absolutely. How? He tried a couple different ways. He tried to kill him with Herod. That's clear in Matthew and in Revelation. 
tried to do it in Matthew chapter 4 with the temptations. But then he finally succeeded in his mind with the death of Christ. When he had Jesus killed through Pilate, the Romans, the Jews, and sinners. Satan thought he was victorious. Killed the Messiah. Bit him on the hill. But when you get bit on the hill by a snake, doesn't mean you die necessarily. Uh, and that's true of the Messiah. He, would not, his, he wouldn't be crushed in the same way. He'd be bit on the hill. He'd be hurt. He'd be hurt temporarily. And then he would rise again from the dead. Resurrection. So even in this illusion here is that this Messiah who got bit by Satan would come back to life resurrection and that is the glorious lord jesus risen from the dead so we're going to go ahead and stop there and continue and pick up next week's but just the scripture even just these two verses have given us a lot to think about in terms of our worldview it's just it's overwhelming but praise god for it because this is truth this is so helpful there's bad news and we know how to interpret the bad news and what's better is this good news this glimmer of hope and it's more than a glimmer of hope it's Jesus the savior being introduced in the very beginning of creation because that is God's goal all throughout history well if you don't know Jesus Christ personally as your savior like i said then that means you're in the family of satan according to the bible and Jesus himself and if that pains you and you'd like to change your status, that comes by believing in Christ and his gospel. If you need somebody to talk to or pray with, you can come up forward here. Just talk privately with one of our pastors. We would love to do that with you. So let's go ahead and pray and commit our day to the Lord. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the Christmas season and the great reminder of the birth of Christ. And even how today we got to talk about the meaning of the birth of the Messiah and why you sent him into the world to be the blessed savior thank you for all of those who have put faith in the lord jesus christ as the god man have trusted in his death as a way to appease your wrath towards sin we thank you that he rose again from the dead victoriously that he went back into heaven lord jesus we thank you that you reign on high even today as king of kings and lord of lords and everything is under your sovereign control absolutely amazing and thank you that you adopt sinners into your family. We pray for those that don't know you, God, that you'd keep working on their hearts with your Holy Spirit, giving them needed information to understand the gospel better, to understand your truth better, so they may consider embracing you and having their status changed by your grace. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.